That was so cool. <laughs> Good morning. Uh, as Andrew said, my name is uh, Matt, and I'm a pastoral resident here. It's Good to be with you. Um, last time I was supposed to be preaching here, probably three or four weeks ago, uh, I ended up getting the flu the, the night before, so I had texted Andrew, and he graciously offered to preach for me. So last night when he knew I was preaching, he texted me, and he said, you're not sick again, are you? So, um, so I'm here, and I'm thankful to be here with you. Um, I hope you all had a really awesome Easter and got to relax and spend some time with friends and family and uh, yeah, I, I just hope it was awesome and you were really inspired by remembering Jesus' resurrection. If you have a Bible, we're going to get right into it. Uh, Hebrews chapter 8 is where we're going to be. We're going to be looking at the whole chapter, uh, page 1005 in the Pew Bibles. And if you don't have a Pew Bible, as always, please go ahead and take one of those. Um, we really do want everyone to have a copy of God's Word, so please take that. That's our gift to you. If you've just recently joined us, like I said, we're, we're going through Hebrews right now, and what Hebrews essentially is, is an ancient document um, that is recording one huge theme, and it's that Jesus is better. And for the original uh, readers of this text, that would have meant that Jesus is better than the Judaism that they were coming out of as they put their faith in Jesus. But I believe that for us, when it comes to our lives, this text confronts us in a little bit of a different way as it asks us the question of if we are clinging to other things other than Jesus, and if those things that we're clinging to, if they are actually better than the Christ. And I believe that the, the point that the text is going to make for us is, no, there is nothing better than Jesus and who he is and what he has done for us. So that's what we've been up to recently. We've learned all kinds of things. We've learned that Jesus is better than the angels. We have learned that because of Jesus, we have peace with God, and we can enter into God's rest. And at the same time, Jesus calls us to follow him. And so while we have peace with God, we are still called to follow God in obedience and strive after serving him. And we have learned that Jesus, just last week, his priesthood is based not on the fact that he comes from a certain family lineage, but on the fact that he has an indestructible life. So that's where we've been, and so we're going to keep going. And before we read chapter 8, I want us to, to get some, I want to preface us with a little bit of an explanation um, of certain things we're going to be looking at, just so we have our bearings about us when we get into the text. But I want us to just take a second to recognize, and I want to recognize the fact that not all of this theology and all of this Jewish history is the most interesting thing for all of us, especially this far into Hebrews. It can seem a little bit redundant. And I know that it's hard sometimes to see how this context intersects with our day-to-day -day life. It may seem very disconnected, but brothers and sisters, I just want to encourage you that to, to recognize that the context that we're reading and these illustrations that the author is making, this is the way that a, a human being inspired by the Holy Spirit writing a biblical text, this is the way that he is showing us how deep and profound Jesus is. And this is his way of calling us to serve him and see him for how glorious he in fact is. So I just want to encourage you this morning to really live into the text of first century Judaism, of early Christianity, and of the ancient Near East, of, of ancient Israel. So are you good with that? Are you following me for this? Okay. All right. Then in light of that, um, let's consider what's happened just previous to our passage. So what Andrew talked about last week was Melchizedek. And so Melchizedek is this really... Uh, interesting and enigmatic character um, that we don't read about very much in scripture. The first time we read about Melchizedek is in Genesis, 
And then we don't read about him again until Psalm 110. In Genesis, he's serving as a priest to Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. And then in Psalm 10, we read this, this phrase that there is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And it's an intriguing phrase because when that was written, all of the priests by that time had come from uh, the tribe of Levi. They were what we would call Levitical priests. And so it begs this question of who is the priest from the tribe of Melchizedek and why is he better? Why is he needed? Why is he even brought up in the Bible? And then by Hebrews chapter 7, just previous to what we're going to be reading today, we see the answer. We see that Jesus is the priest in order of Melchizedek. And so they use Melchizedek as this uh, characteristic example to help describe to us who Jesus is. And so where Melchizedek's name means my king is righteousness, Jesus is in fact our righteous king. And where we don't read in the text about Melchizedek's uh, family or his lineage or his death, Jesus never dies and he has no beginning and no end. Okay. All right, so as we get into this, let's, let's keep going. And I want to say that in light of that, I want to consider a little more context of what it comes to uh, what a priest is, what a temple is, and what offerings are, because this is something that's going to come up frequently, and we're going to, uh, the, the, the biblical author is going to skip from the idea of a high priest to a covenant. He's going to come back to the priesthood later, so I want us to have a good understanding of this. So let's ask the question, what is a priest, and what, have they, what do they have to do with this thing called the temple and sacrifices? And so a priest would serve... I know many of you know this, but for those uh, new people here, what a, a priest would do is he would serve as the mediator between God and the people. He would serve as the intermediary, and God would come to dwell. His presence would come to dwell in this thing called the temple. If you research the ancient Near East, other tribes and other religions actually built temples that they believed their God was going to come dwell in. And so when God came and he made a covenant with his people, he told them to build a temple so that he would come and dwell to be with them. And then the priest, as the intermediary between the people and God who was dwelling in the temple, the priest would offer sacrifices because the people, as we know, we are sinful, we are flawed human beings, and God is perfectly holy. And so the people would offer sacrifices in order that they would be in right relationship with God. By the end of chapter 7, as we soon approach chapter 8, we read that Jesus, as our high priest, he had no need to offer sacrifice like the priests of old because he was perfect and he was sinless. So he had no need to offer a sacrifice for himself. So the main idea as we exit chapter 7 and get into chapter 8 today is going to be the idea that Jesus is the better priest. And eventually towards, uh, towards the end of chapter 8, we'll switch into, like I said, this idea of covenant. So as we get into the text now, as we read chapter 8, uh, I'm going to be asking you a lot of questions. I'm going to be giving you a lot, a lot of information, but I want us to just remember two things this morning. The first thing is that Jesus is the full and perfect expression of God's priesthood. And the second thing is that Jesus mediates a better covenant that's built on better promises. So I'll say one more time that Jesus is a full and perfect expression of God's priesthood and that Jesus mediates a better covenant that is built on better promises. So now you've got your heads full of info and hopefully it's working your way down to your heart and let's get now into chapter eight. We're going to read it, like I said, page 1005. If you would all stand, that would be awesome, in honor of God's word. And if you follow along intently, I can read this to us. Here we go. 
Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were here on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there wouldn't have been a need for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to vanish away. Great. Thanks. You can have a seat. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you that Jesus is our better high priest, and we pray that you would give us a a larger uh, picture, that you would magnify him in our minds, hearts, and work through our hands, that we would show our community how profound and glorious your son is this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, now in all of scripture, I don't think it gets much more straightforward. I can't think of another passage that's much more straightforward than verse one. Now the point in what we are saying is this. So we had just been talking about the priesthood for like ever, and now he's finally getting to his point. And so here we have to take a minute to stop and recognize that he is about to tell us what kind of high priest Jesus is. And he says this, we have such a high priest one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up and not man. All right, there we go. So where the priests under the old covenant, they would come and they would offer a sacrifice in the temple. Jesus is offering his actual sacrifice in heaven. I mean, that's what verses four and five is getting at when he says, if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest at all since there were priests who offer according to the law, they serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he instructed God by saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So the point he's making is this, is that when Moses was up on Mount Sinai, this is where God gave him the law. So Moses goes up onto Mount Sinai and God says, copy the, the, the template, the, the example. Look according to the example I have shown you for the tabernacle, which eventually evolves into the temple. So what, what God is doing is he is showing Moses something, and Moses is copying it so that he knows how the people are to build the temple. 
And so the point that the author is making is that whatever he was copying is better than what we saw. And Jesus is in that better place. So heaven is the better temple, and Jesus is in heaven. That's what he's getting at. So Jesus isn't just anywhere in heaven, right? It says he is at the right hand. And I, I know a lot of people in today's market, they're selling uh, their houses. And the way that I like to think of this is the right hand is kind of the prime real estate. This is, this is the place of honor at the right hand of God. Then we see this, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Offer. So not only does Jesus have the, the place of honor in the better temple in actually heaven where God is, but he is not offering a sacrifice like the priests of old. What he is doing is he's not offering a sacrifice that are bulls or goats or the blood of any other animal to mediate for the people. What he is doing is he is offering his own self. He is offering his own blood. Church, this is a really profound idea that God incarnate would offer up himself for your redemption in salvation. And this is where it starts to get interesting because then we're forced to ask the question, where does this meet us? How does this theology, how does this idea that God is in heaven and he is offering his blood, he's in a better place on our behalf, mediating for us, where does this meet us in our day-to-day life? And this is where it meets us. When we realize that because Jesus is there doing that, all the pressure of having to live up to God's standard perfectly has been lifted off of us. Let me, let me give you an example or an illustration. Last October, I turned 26, and the, the bane of my existence became this thing that I like to call health insurance. And I was, I was taken off of my parents' health insurance, and I had to pay for my own. And I was like, what is this? And when you think about what health insurance really is, this is what you're doing. You are, you are paying, whether through your job or out of your own pocket, in order that you're, you're covered should something go wrong. And so I do this from month to month. I have the money taken out of my account, and for that month, I'm covered. I am, I am good to go. And brothers and sisters, let's, let's multiply this need to be covered by an infinite amount when we think of an infinitely holy God as we compare the, the example of health insurance to what it would mean to be an ancient Israelite and have to offer sacrifice. So you would go and you would offer your payment in the form of sacrifice for your sins, which is something that went wrong with you. And for the time that the priest would go in and he would offer that sacrifice for you, you were covered and you were good to go with God. You, were, you, you had peace with God and could approach him with relationship. However, you walk right outside the doors of the temple, and five minutes later, you are dishonoring your parents, and immediately, you are made unholy again, and you would have to offer another sacrifice. A day later, you, you hate somebody in your heart. You sin against God. You are disobedient in any way, the smallest to largest thing, and it was like that. You would have to offer another sacrifice. Do you feel that pressure that they must have felt, having to consistently offer sacrifices, the pressure to be good enough, the pressure so that you didn't have to to, to offer a sacrifice again, you didn't want to screw up. What's unfortunate is that I think we live into this as the church sometimes. I mean, how often do we gauge our standing in relationship with God based upon our ability to follow God perfectly and not upon Jesus' ability to offer up his blood for us? 
How often do we think that God is ashamed of us when we screw up instead of realizing that we are perfectly accepted in Christ and that he calls us sons and daughters and where sin abounds, grace abounds more. Church, the reason that Jesus' personal offering in the location of heaven at the right hand of God is important is because he is always there and he will never die and his blood is a permanent sacrifice on our behalf. And because of that, all burden we have to live up to a perfect standard is is lifted and we can joyfully serve God knowing that when we do screw up, Jesus never did and he is still there mediating on our behalf. Have you ever asked somebody uh, if they go to the doctor and their uh, ridiculous response was, Jesus is my health insurance? Have you ever heard that? This is a, a, a bit cliche and extreme. People use this as an excuse not to go to the doctor. Jesus is my health insurance, so I'm good to go. He's got me covered. But as cliche as that is, church, it's in very basic terms, when it comes to your eternal destiny, Jesus really is your health insurance. His blood has you covered In him you are seen as good and righteous and pure. So let's keep going. Verses 6 through 13 say this. But as it is, Christ has obtained a better ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second, for he finds fault when he says... Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I'll be their God and they'll be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. For the, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he speaks. He makes the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete is growing old and is ready to vanish away. So now we've made a switch. We have gone now from talking about Jesus' priesthood and his ability to permanently and perfectly mediate for us, and now we've switched over to the idea of covenant. He'll come back to priesthood later in the book, but now we're talking about the idea of covenant. And if you don't know what a covenant is, I think the most basic way to conceive of covenant is as a partnership. God wants to partner with us in order to bring his kingdom into this world. And in the context of this book, he's thinking about the covenant that God made with the people at Mount Sinai, that is with the nation of Israel. And so God enters into a partnership and said to them, if you will obey me, then I will bless you and I will be your king and I will be your God. And unfortunately, we know that they didn't uh, follow that perfectly, but this is the idea of covenant. It is a partnership. And you see priests in the Old Testament would serve according to this covenant, according to the law. God gave this law to Moses in Mount Sinai, and then this law served as the instructions or the template by which the people would know how they were supposed to be in the partnership. It was almost like the contract that God wrote up with these people. But now the point that the author is making is that Jesus has gotten a better ministry Because he operates according to some kind of different covenant, a new covenant than the one of old. And he says the reason that it is a better covenant is because it's built upon better promises. 
which should lead us to ask the question, what are these promises? What are the promises that God has ushered in through Christ? And this text, I would say, indicates three. I believe there are more than this, but we're going to stick to three for this morning, and we're just going to knock them out. There are three of them, and I will read them off, and then I'm going to give us some idea of how they are relevant to us, where they meet us, whether practically, internally, for the sake of our identity. So here's the first one, where the old covenant law was conditional in nature, with blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience, the new covenant, according to Jesus, is unconditional and built upon his complete faithfulness to us. Friends, that means that no no matter what you do or what you have done, no matter how bad you screw up, God is not out to get you. His anger is not burning for you if you are in Christ He wants to express love for you. He wants to give you grace in Christ. And his love for you is just as ferocious when you screw up and pure as it was on the first day that you believed on Jesus. Now, he does discipline us and he does sanctify us so that we won't repeat the same mistakes. But his love for you is built not upon your ability to follow him, but upon Jesus' ability to serve him and mediate for us. The next thing is that where the old covenant had flawed people expressing outward obedience through these sacrifices with the hope that their heart would change, the new covenant gives us an opportunity to have transformed hearts. This is what God has promised us, that through his spirit, we will be given new hearts that yearn to serve God. This is where the Holy Spirit comes into play. This is where he works in our life because we know that we cannot perfectly follow God on our own. But we also know that God is giving us a heart to serve him. And every time we are striving after him, we are not doing it in vain, and it is not for no purpose. And God is doing it, and he is working in us. We are not doing it alone. The Holy Spirit is working in us to make us into more pure reflections of who Jesus is. Finally, where the old covenant functioned in a way that relationship with God was through priests. It was more corporate than it is now. So the nation of Israel would work through the priests in order to be in a relationship with God. What's going on here is that God is offering us personal one-on-one relationship through his son. I do want to say that God does call us into a corporate experience and, and worship of who he is. We're experiencing that this morning. However, for the circumstances of this text, I believe this is where we should be taking comfort in a God who knows how many hairs are on each of our head, a God that wants to know us intimately, that wants us to share with him our fears, that wants, to share, that wants us to share with him our, our sins and our sorrows and our addictions and our joys, and he wants, to share, or he wants us to share our victories with him because they are his victories in us. And that God has drawn near to us if we are in Christ. And because of Christ, we can draw near back and experience his love. And we can express worship and affection. So church, are you living into the promises that God has made you according to this new covenant? Are you still working for your salvation? Or are you trusting in God's faithfulness for you? Are your acts of obedience because your heart has actually been changed, or are you going through the motions? Are you viewing yourself in light of the identity that God has given you when he shows that he wants to know you personally? 
I think when we think of the cross, we often think of uh, God imputing his righteousness to us and taking our sin upon us as Jesus dies. But not often enough do we think that the cross was a demonstration that God wanted to know each and every one of us on a personal and intimate level. And Christ was the means by which he was able to do that. As we close this morning, I just want to come back and remind you of the two things that this this author is bringing up. He is bringing up that Jesus is the full and perfect expression of God's priesthood. And he is showing us that Jesus mediates a better covenant because it's built on better promises. We're going to take the time to move into communion now as as Ben and the worship team come up and we have two tables here and one in the back. When you're ready, um, you can get up and take communion. But before you do that, I just want you to take a second to sit and ponder as the worship team starts playing and recognize that because Jesus is our high priest and he has ushered us into this new covenant, this new promise and partnership that God has made. And we can live according to all of these promises. Are you taking hold of all of these promises? We can live into the identity that we are sons and daughters adopted by God through Christ. Church, are you actually believing that you are are a beloved son or daughter? If you haven't placed your faith in Jesus, then I just ask that you'd abstain from communion this morning. But I want to caveat that with this, that there is no better time than right now to consider what Christ has done for you, to place your faith in him for who he is. I believe that he loves you and he is calling you to trust in him. And all he asks is that you would repent and turn of your sin and believe on him for who he is and what he's done. It would be all of our pleasure if you would join us in God's family this morning in taking communion. The final thing that I wanna do is this, this text right here, this Old Testament text, is the longest Old Testament quote in the New Testament. And it, I think that's that way for a reason. This is a promise that God has made to us. And what I'd like us to do is I'd like us to stand, and I'm going to have the, that text up there on the board, and I want us to read the promise that God has made to us corporately. And as we're doing that, I want us to remember that that promise up there has been purchased with Christ's blood. And then as we go to take communion, that we are remembering what Christ has done for us in order to secure this for us. So let's stand and let's read this together. It says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that because you died and rose again, that promise is true of us and that we can take hold in the power of your spirit of the goodness and abundant life that you offer us. 
Jesus, that because you are offering yourself up on our behalf, God looks on us and he says righteous and good, that he loves us and can afford us grace in our great and in our stumbling moments. Lord, we pray that our lives would be viewed in light of the identity that we have in Christ, that we would respond in the power of your spirit to know you, to seek after you, and to serve you. We pray that you would be glorified in us and through us as we attempt to witness you have made us a kingdom of priests as we reflect Jesus. Let us be those who mediate on behalf of our king and our community. Let us be witnesses and neighbors to them as we respond in love. In Jesus' name, amen.